Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. We're going to continue our study this morning in Romans. We will be in Romans chapter 14 today. Romans 14 verse 1. It'll be a minute before we get there. As you're turning there this morning, just one quick uh, amendment to the announcements. Jimmy has unknowingly shown that he's unwilling to recognize that tomorrow is November. So for all of you in the same boat... It's here, whether you like it or not, okay? So we will have First Wednesday in November, but uh, come December, mostly because we can't predict the weather uh, that time of year. Uh, we'll wrap up First Wednesdays. But yes, it's that time of year, like it or not. So here we, here we come, holiday season, all right? Okay, well, we are going to, as I mentioned, we'll pick up in, in Romans 14 here this morning. And as we make our way into this section of Romans, though we've dealt with this already, I would say perhaps even more pointedly, we will be considering the topic of unity. In fact, I'll start with a story here this morning. You may have heard the story of two men who were standing on a bridge. One, sadly, is about to jump and the other is trying to talk him out of it. Now, the man asks the jumper, so... Are you a Christian or a Hindu or a a Jew? And the jumper replies, a Christian. And the man says, well, small world, me too. He proceeds then to ask him, are you Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox? And the jumper answers, Protestant. To which the man replies, me too. And then asks him, well, what denomination? And the jumper says, Baptist. And the man replies, Me too. And continues his line of questioning, asking then, Southern Baptist or Northern Baptist? To which the jumper answers, Northern Baptist. I know some of you didn't realize they existed, but they do. And the man replies, Me too. And continues on, Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? And the jumper answers, Northern Conservative Baptist. And the man replies, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? And the jumper answers, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. (laughs) No way, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? The jumper answers, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912, of course. And the man pushes the jumper off the bridge and screams, (laughs) Die, heretic. (sighs) This story, of course, while intended to be humorous, in its own dark way, I will admit, reveals the perspective many have of the church today. It captures, even if in some small way, the division that exists within his church. Oftentimes, as a result of things that we would consider non-essential. 
And it stands, quite frankly, in stark contrast to the words of our Savior that we've considered often. Found in His prayer as recorded in John 17, specifically verses 20 and 21, where Jesus prayed, not just for these alone, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they shall be one as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that You sent Me. Friends, these were the words of our Savior Jesus in some of His final moments leading up to the cross. I find myself increasingly grieved today at the lack of unity amongst the body of Christ. And often for no other reason than preference. For no other reason than pride and selfishness. I find myself, and I praise God for it, increasingly astounded by His words there in John 17. As you'll likely hear me utter many times today and no doubt times in the future, I can't quite comprehend how it is that the body of Christ can experience the level of unity that Jesus does with the Father, but I can't deny that He prays for it for us. Or that that, that unity is what would cause a world to know that God sent His Son. It's truly an amazing thing. And as we've considered as of late, I wonder what the impact has been to our witness before a world that desperately needs the hope that is found in the truth of the Gospel. Many, we must realize, have been turned away from the church when the very love and hope and peace that they are looking for, that the church could offer, seems to to not be found amongst those who are tearing each other apart over things that have no bearing on salvation. It's often been said, and I fear it's in some respects true, that Christians have unwittingly added two books to the canon of Scripture, that of first and second opinions. And the sad thing is, it's not just been the impact to our witness to those outside the church, but what of the impact to the health of the body inwardly? Often we must confess there is a cancer, a hidden cancer, albeit eating away and eroding the foundations of our very gatherings. There oftentimes only because we're unwilling to truly be vulnerable, transparent, obedient to Scripture. And, and I think I could say today that I am blessed to be a part of a body here at Calvary Northeast that has experienced relatively little division. We've not faced, as of late, a major crisis of unity, but it could strike at any moment. And so this is an area we must remain diligent in. And we must remain willing to be transparent and vulnerable with one another taking seriously the work of unity. Paul writes in Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 1-6, through six, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That speaks of pursuing it 
endeavoring to say we want to maintain the unity of the Spirit here in our fellowship, knowing, as he explains in verses 4-6, through there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. You see, the story of the two men on a bridge is a fictitious story, but in so many respects it's true. And it ought not to be so, because ultimately, though there are so many non-essential things that cause us to divide, there is, in fact, one church. And it's His. Maintaining unity takes conscious effort. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, to be sure, but one that we must be surrendered to. Furthermore, it is of profound importance not only to the mission of the church evangelistically, but also for our own spiritual health. Here before us today, as promised, the Lord's table is set once again. If you're visiting us for the first time today, we do practice the taking of communion regularly, but recently have embarked on a journey to consider it a bit more intently and to take of it more frequently. And last week, we considered how communion should hold more of a sacred place in our gatherings. And and as it does, it requires also then that we consider our own spiritual state. That's one of the great benefits of taking communion is that it provides a time, an opportunity for us to go before the Lord if we are taking it seriously and to say as the psalmist, Lord, search my heart, know me. See if there is any wicked way in me. Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. That is to say, God, look in. Look into the places of my heart and of my life, the the, the places that I've held on to, that I've sought to try and keep a secret even though nothing is with you. And Lord, expose it, reveal it, deal with it, Lord. It's a wonderful opportunity, not for us to just come and, and go through the line and take of communion because that's what we do, but to say, Lord, this is an opportunity for you to change my heart, for me to participate in your body and your blood. Paul writes, and I promise we'll get to Romans, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, verses 17 through 20, he says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Paul was writing to them about the taking of communion, and he was addressing issues with it. He says to them, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Paul here says, because of your division, the thing that you think you're doing, the taking of the Lord's Supper, you're not. It's no longer sacred. You think you're taking communion, but, but you're, just, you're just taking of bread and wine. He says, because there is division. The act then is no longer sacred. It's not communion, which as we know, that word communion is such a powerful word. It's the word koinonia. And in the context of the church and the taking of the Lord's Supper, it speaks of an intimate fellowship between the believers as they participate in the body and blood of Christ. I can think of nothing more sacred. Nothing. 
And he invites us to do that together here this morning. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, speaking of conduct and our hearts towards one another, is recorded there in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, saying, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. I'm going to challenge you, even in this moment, as we have time still remaining before communion, that this time, the the fellowship time, the time of prayer, the time of praise, the study of the Word, it's all intended to ready our hearts for communion. And so even now, I would encourage, allow the Holy Spirit to begin working on your heart and your mind, if, if not already, to search these things out, to determine, do I have an issue that needs to be addressed today? Am I at odds with someone amongst the body of Christ? Would there be reason today for me either to to take action, to get things right with the Lord, or, or maybe even refrain from taking communion until I can do so? Because it is evident through what we read in Scripture that the triune God of the universe, the holy creator God, is very concerned with the unity of his people. Kent Hughes writes that the propagation of the gospel of Christ is bound up, for better or for worse, with the degree of unity that we display to the world. Our Christian unity is of utmost importance. But it's not the propagation of the gospel alone, but the unity that is necessary for the spiritual health of the body. Yet, as we considered here in our study of Romans, the body of Christ, and as we start to look towards this more, and Paul has made it clear, the body of Christ is quite diverse. And so when you think of unity and diversity amongst the body, what we need to understand is that normally, diversity does not make for unity. As Kent Hughes continues, he says, because of our human tendency to judge those who do not conform to our customs or standards, the unity of Christ's church is often imperiled by diversity, as church history repeatedly records Romans 14 and 15 being no different. And so, of course, we encounter this today as we venture into our study. In fact, I would say that over the next three weeks, as we tackle Romans 14 and 15, we are going to consider the topic of unity. And this would be my title for this series of messages, and that is the essentials for maintaining unity in a diverse church. Now, diversity, to be clear, is not the number of colors that exist amongst us only. But the backgrounds, and the journeys, and the testimonies, and the upbringings, and with that then the perspectives and the convictions that often accompany such things. We have no shortage of differences to speak to in our culture today, no doubt. And each one of them, I'm sure, is attached to a strong opinion from simple matters such as to see a movie or not to see a movie. To listen to this music or not this music. Wine or no wine. Or here's a fitting one today. Halloween or no Halloween. To the more weightier of the day. Vaccine or no vaccine. Republican or Democrat. You see, our fallen nature struggles against diversity because it longs for sameness. 
But having put on Christ, we begin then to see the beauty of the diversity that God has designed where there is unity found in differences only when Christ is at the center. That's where it's truly realized. As I've said of many things as of late, what the world knows of diversity and unity pales in comparison to the real thing. And these were some of the challenges of the early church, as we'll consider today in Romans 14, 1 through 12. And we'll see in our study this morning the first three principles in maintaining unity in a diverse church. If you're taking notes this morning, they are as follows. The first would be, as believers, we must genuinely accept other believers when we have different perspectives. Emphasis there on genuinely accept. Paul earlier had said love without hypocrisy. And similar would be true here. Genuinely accepting other believers even when we have different perspectives. Now, bear in mind, number two and number three will help to bring this better into focus as as number two this morning would be that genuine acceptance is clarified by essential versus non-essential matters. There is a difference. Genuine acceptance is clarified by essential versus non-essential matters. And number three, genuine acceptance should be motivated by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul writes, beginning in verse 1 and 1 through 4, he says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. You see, the church in Rome was characterized by diversity, largely in part to the mix of Jewish Christians who had returned to the area following the persecution of Emperor Claudius, and then the Gentile Christians who had their upbringing in pagan Rome. Certainly, you could say there, wasn't, there couldn't have been more different backgrounds of people coming together in one place. And this made for a gathering then of those who were still largely tied to their ritualistic and traditional uh, paths that were rooted in the law. And then those who had come from a, a very loose background where in many respects anything goes. Yet both were believers and were called to have fellowship. Now there was apparently one issue in particular that was causing problems. Then it was those who ate meat versus those who did not. Now, we don't know why for sure uh, this was an issue other than certainly the letter to the Corinthians maybe gives us some insight. There they were dealing with a similar problem and it was because the meat that was being eaten was, was sold after the animal had been sacrificed to idols, pagan idols. Right? And so there was a concern then over eating that meat, but we don't know this for sure. It could have been a matter of the, the kosher dietary laws that some deem to just... Can, still be beneficial it could be that in rome there was more of an abundance of pork than there was uh, a type of other more clean animal whatever the case was they were divided over this and it was causing issues and in response paul makes a few things clear first he says that they were to receive one another that is accept one another genuinely 
Again, no hypocrisy here. Furthermore, he said not unto debates. So not to invite someone in such that, oh, I can convince them of my view. Sure, let's have fellowship with them and I've got my notes in order. I'm going to convince them that they're wrong. Rather to say, no, let's have fellowship, brother to brother, sister to sister. And then we see here that Paul characterizes the two brothers saying one is weak in the faith and the other strong. Now, I will say that it's interesting here that Paul says that the weak one is the one who eats vegetables. I agree. (laughs) I see this as an exhortation to go to the Brazilian steakhouse today. Amen? Anybody with me? Okay. I was just sucking you in because you're super unspiritual for saying that. (laughs) Because this, of course, we know is not what Paul's saying. We might be inclined to say, yeah, yeah, put some meat on those bones. They'll just eat veggies. But this is not how he was defining them. Now, we will see later on, we won't get there today, just a heads up, the latter part of chapter 14, we'll see that Paul does, in effect, side with the meat eaters. But he does so in terms of liberty in Christ. And so the weak here are considered so more as a result of their bend toward that which would be considered a bit more legalistic, perhaps a matter of conscience, as opposed to the one who has more thoroughly and carefully considered the matter and come to a, uh, an understanding in their own heart such that they feel free moving forward and saying, I, I can eat meat. God's okay with it. I've considered his word. And, and, and such a person then might be stronger in the faith. If that's difficult to understand, consider when Peter had the vision on the rooftop wherein God declared that all things were clean. And he challenged Peter to eat, but but Peter there was incredibly uncomfortable. Peter in his Jewishness was quite reluctant to take and to eat. And, And sadly, this reluctance followed Peter for a time. He even sought to limit other believers' freedoms and to bring them under elements of Jewish law, which Paul challenged. You see, Peter was struggling, and you can say, this is Peter, he was an apostle, but Peter in some respects was weak in his faith as he was struggling to let go of things that God was maturing him in. So Paul categorizes the two this way, but then says, look, you're not to judge one another in this matter. You're not to look down on one another. The stronger brethren is not to look and say, oh, I'm stronger than you, you, you weak brother, but to simply recognize that their conscience is convicting them in a particular way, and I'm to pursue unity in this situation. Moreover, the weaker brother, to look at the stronger one and, and not say, how dare you partake of this, but to realize this is my conviction so that we can genuinely accept a brother or sister in Christ even when we have different perspectives. So long as, in case any of you get a little uncomfortable at this point, so long as those perspectives do not compromise the gospel. Certainly, if we take Scripture in its entirety, we would see that Christian liberty, as defined in Romans 14, does not give license to sin when God's Word specifically addresses it. So don't go there. Furthermore, we'll see here that that Paul begins to bring into view things that can help to manage this debate between what you could say is a more conservative approach versus liberty in Christ. And so we see here that there are things that matter and things that don't. As we look at verses 5 and 6, Paul says, One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. 
Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. For he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat. And gives God thanks. It's as if Paul is saying here that two people come before him. One's maybe chowing down on a big steak as they're talking and the other one's munching their veggies and one guy says, I can eat meat and I'm, I'm going to eat as, meat, as much meat as I want. And, and Paul says, oh, praise God. And the other one says, you shouldn't eat meat. I only eat veggies. I'm going to keep eating veggies. And he says, praise God. That's what we can do when there's unity amongst the body. And, and, the, and the thing we need to consider here in verses 5 and 6 is that Paul, bringing now other things into view beyond just meat and vegetables, shows that this is a principle, not simply a specific issue. Stated differently, we can't look at this passage and say, Paul was only dealing with the church here on the matter of eating meat or eating vegetables. No, as he starts to address different things, he's saying, guys, this is a principle in general that we need to employ. And so when he speaks of a day, many people believe that he's probably referring to the Sabbath because, of course, there's still debate today. When is the Sabbath? Should the church meet on Friday evening to Saturday evening and observe that Sabbath that the Jews kept? Or is it Sunday because it's the, it's the first day of the week and we see a pattern for that? And, of course, when Jesus was raised from the dead. Or is this referring to other Jewish holidays that they wanted to keep? You see, there are differences of opinion on numerous things. As I mentioned, whether it's the Sabbath or different holidays, even still today, some feel Christmas is one of the holiest days of the year, and others that it is entirely worldly and has no place in the church any longer. There's a host, host of other differences that we could speak on this morning, but that would be of no benefit the thing that we are called to do as the church when such things come before us, when anything's brought before me in such a manner, to simply ask the question, well, what does the Bible say? And if you're honest, if you're honest, without seeking to find a proof text out of context, you must reply, nothing. Nothing. So many of these issues the Word of God is silent on. Does that mean that you then disregard it entirely? Perhaps. Perhaps you do. Perhaps the issue is now a moot point and you're done. Or perhaps you allow it to be a matter of conscience for the individual. To say this is something that they're convicted on and passionate about. This is where Paul says to be fully convinced in your own mind, to have studied the matter and to respond to your convictions. Once again, we won't get there today, but we'll see that later on in chapter 14, Paul will say, because if you don't, then you're bringing judgment on yourself. If the Holy Spirit convicts you on a matter, don't disregard it. But here's the thing. Don't allow your convictions to prompt you to try to be the Holy Spirit in someone else's life. Now, knowing we're called to unity... We must then consider this, consider that unity above the issues of preference. There's a man by the name of Rupertus Meldenius. I offered it up as a possible baby name in the first service. He's a German theologian in the early 1600s, and he's uh, reported to have said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. In other words, 
keep the main thing the main thing. And so we see then that genuine acceptance is characterized by essential versus non-essential matters. Once again, there is a difference. And rest assured, if it is an essential matter, a gospel issue, there is no acceptance then for anything but objective truth. You can consider for a moment Paul's indictment of the church in Galatia. If you want an exciting letter to read that's a little different than Paul's other letters, read Galatians. There's many examples to choose from. I'd look to chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed amongst you as crucified. And it was in this very letter, as a matter of fact, that Paul was dealing with the issue of Judaizers trying to bring the church back under the law. And so when we see things that are clearly identified in Scripture, yes, as a body of Christ, we are called to address those things. But we must be careful. And we must be careful also considering the matters of liberty. And so this isn't just about who Paul refers to as the weaker in the faith, but to those who consider themselves strong yet use liberty as license to sin. In both cases, detracting from our unity. And how do we address this? How are we careful to find the right balance in these things? We consider ultimately who is in charge of our lives. As Paul writes in verses 7 through 9, for none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. If you want an example of what the main thing is, it's right there for you. This is what we are to be unified around. And Jesus Christ, whether you want to recognize it or not, he is the Lord over all things. He has taken his seat at the right hand of the Father and will rule in glory for all time. And your life, Paul wants you to understand, if it's not become clear yet, going back to the very beginning, 1 through 11, or perhaps chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and and so on, he wants you to understand your life is not your own. It's not yours. You may be offended by that. Such is life. You're his. As we sang earlier, as a believer, you're no longer slave to sin. You're a slave to righteousness, to him. But in either case, you're owned. And for us, one of the greatest motivations for us to genuinely accept others in the name of unity is the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. Such perspective can make quick work of the pride in your heart as you judge another for seeing things differently than you. Such perspective provides much-needed humility as we respect each other's personal convictions and allow for matters of conscience. I long for this once again. The debates that we're seeing today, especially those that have come as a product of the pandemic, all that we could get to a place once again where we respected the conscience, where we respected convictions, and when we handle them rightly with one another. 
Further, such perspective ensures that the weaker brother does not become overly dependent on the works of their flesh. That is, for the weaker brethren that's more prone toward uh, elements that could be considered legalism, albeit, yes, can be done because of a matter of conviction or conscience, but, but if not having the proper perspective that Jesus is Lord of their life, then they might be prone to do more and more of those things as an, in an effort to gain approval, in an effort to gain more of God's love, misunderstanding that there's nothing that you could do to earn his favor or earn his approval. And the fact is, he loved you just as much today as he did the day that he died for you on the cross. And so understanding who is Lord of your life can help the weak brother, but it can also help the other brother who may use liberty as a license to sin. For if we know who's in charge, if we know that it's all to him and all to the glory of God, that he's over all things, it becomes a more difficult thing for us to excuse our sin when we realize we're living for him. Verse 10, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so Paul is now taking this even further, saying it's, it's the, it, Jesus is Lord over your life. And, and furthermore, we're all going to stand before him in judgment. For it is written, verse 11, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this. Note here in verse 13, the latter, the latter part of this verse, which is going to be our cliffhanger this week, that he says not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Yes, no doubt there are many questions that come from this exhortation. What all does this entail, Lord? How far do we go? What about that difficult brother who's legalistic about everything? Do I need to give up everything for him? You're going to need to come back next week to find out. But here's what I'll say. These are the words spoken by the same man who said, might I be accursed for the sake of my brethren. If you're not familiar with such language, he says, let me be damned to hell if it means my brethren coming to know Jesus. That's a level of sacrifice that I don't know. I've said such before. Furthermore, I'm really all about the whole let's go to heaven together. Can I get an amen on that? Okay, I just want to make sure I wasn't alone on that. But Paul does say here, let us resolve, let us commit, let us make the decision to not put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Why? Because he understood Jesus wants us to be unified. And so Paul then here, as he brings these things up, continues with the truth that he began with, one that's been woven throughout the entire letter thus far, and it is that we are not called to judge our brothers and sisters. We're not called to vengeance for those that are outside. It's God's job. Paul really wants us to understand that, that God can do it on his own. He's got it under control. You don't need to be worried about your brother or sister. You don't need to be worried about those on the outside, whether or not justice is going to prevail, whether or not God's going to deal with their heart. He's got it. Now here, though, being that Paul is speaking of and to believers, and here he's talking about judgment, it's important to understand he is not speaking of judgment unto condemnation, but rather what is called the Bema Seat judgment, which is for believers. In the end times, and we'll 
course, consider this in our study of Revelation as well. There are two places of judgment. Rest assured, you want to be before the Bema seat, not the great white throne. And the Bema seat is for believers. Paul gives a little insight to it, and other passages do as well. Two that I looked at are 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that's in the Greek Bema seat, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is the place where you get your rewards, Christian. There's going to be rewards in heaven? Yes, there are. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. What Paul, in many respects, is intending to communicate here is that there are some things that will have their eternal reward. Things that are done for the sake of the kingdom. Things that are done with the focus of the gospel in view and and, and things that are rooted in the word. But as it pertains to our study here today, many of these non-essential things are works that will simply be burned up. They'll profit you nothing in eternity. You celebrate a victory because you convinced a a brother or sister to to believe like you do about a, a movie or a book or a holiday. And you say, yes, got another one. It's going to burn away nothing. But oh, those faithful saints who are about the business of unifying the body of Christ, rallying the troops as it were around the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I trust there's a crown for that. And so here, what Paul wants us to understand is he brings these things in view and and the question I think that he would ask is, Christian, do you know that you are the Lord's? Your life is not your own. It was bought, redeemed at a great cost. I'll ask a question that I've asked often over these last several weeks. Has love conquered your heart? Is this your motivation? Or is it still the things of the flesh? Do you know that you will stand before Him? And and just you. No one else. And you're not going to go and stand before your brethren who we give so much time and attention to for the wrong reasons, you're going to stand before Him and alone. Now praise God, believers will have the covering of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus as we stand before Him. But it's going to be just you. It means that we need to be concerned about that relationship, to be concerned about the vertical relationship first and foremost. Or are you more worried about your own convictions? and whether they are the convictions of others than you are about pleasing the Lord? Are you so concerned about being the Holy Spirit in another's life that you're quenching His work in your own to the detriment of the unity of the body? Or to the Christian who has liberty, are you so entitled to your freedoms that you'll hold to them even at the expense of your brother and to the detriment of the unity of the body? Or will you in humility sacrifice some of those things for the sake of another and to the glory of Jesus, to come alongside a brother or sister and say, you know what, this isn't important. You're more important. Once again, I recognize some may ask, how far does that go? How far do we go for unity? 
And I don't mean to be hard on you, but chances are if you're asking that question, probably farther than what you're willing right now. But yes, if someone's being unreasonable to either end, I do believe that Scripture helps us to deal with that. And we'll get into that next week. For today, as we prepare now to take communion, can we, for today, consider that Jesus bought us with His body and blood. That He paid for the unity of His church with His life. And today we have the opportunity once again to participate in that with each other, provided we're unified. And guys, I'll, I'll be honest, even standing here right now, I mean, if, if you were to take a moment and just kind of look around, do it, do it, you know, not so awkwardly for a few seconds, just look around. Just turn your head, it's okay. You might make eye contact, but, you know, it's good. Guys, I think many, if not all of you, would agree your, your, your simple presence here would suggest that you're, you're thinking, man, there's some cool stuff happening in this fellowship. And I don't ever want to suggest that it's not. I, I believe that the Lord is working. He's doing an awesome work here. But here's what I'm also aware of. Right now, as you looked around, I'm willing to venture 50 to 75% of the people you see, you probably don't even know. Am I unified with them? Do I, do, is there real unity? Yeah, we can sit here and we can say, hey, amen, to a, a good point that's made rooted in Scripture. That's good. But what does unity speak of? What, what we're about to partake of, communion, is the word koinonia. It means fellowship. It means intimacy. It means participation. And it's not just each of us individually to the elements and, and, and to Christ. It means with one another. It means with each other. Intimacy. I said it earlier, and I'll say it again, and I'll say it a million times. I, I find myself increasingly at a loss for words for what the Lord is, is showing in this, and just to say, God, I don't, I, I don't get this. I don't understand it all. But it sounds absolutely amazing. And I, and I want it, Lord, and I want more of it. But, but God, how do we do that? Because if, if we're to experience intimacy as a body, I believe that that's far beyond what we've even begun to scratch the surface of. And I don't say that from a place of condemnation. Listen, if you hear like, oh man, I want to get better. Not, listen, this, that's a work that the Lord does. If anything, that should cause us collectively here to say, I want that. I want more of that. Don't feel bad that we maybe haven't experienced it all yet. Get excited that, Lord, there's more. If, if you find yourself here and you're like, we got a great church. Well, guess what? He's got more for us. Amen? Do you want that? Because intimacy, guys, I think is intimacy, proper understanding of intimacy, like most things, is to be understood between us and him. That's what right looks like. Everything else we pursue in this world is just a copy. It just pales in comparison to what we know in him. And so if he's calling us to intimacy, then that's rooted in, in that. And he has said, the cool thing about intimacy is he has said, look, I'll give you a picture of intimacy. I'm going to give you something to help you understand more about what this relationship is supposed to be like. I'm going to give you something called marriage. Some laugh. He says, that's the picture. He says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Two will become one flesh. Can't, can't break it apart. He says, that relationship is intended to be a picture. And so that same word, he says, and he prayed, that's what I want my church to know. One flesh. Oneness. And not just there, not on the horizontal, but then together to the vertical, 
to participate in my body and my blood. I, I don't understand it, but I find myself saying, but Lord, I want it. And I don't know where it goes, and I don't know if we ever get to a place where we go, oh, okay, that we got it, until we're in glory. That's when I think we go, okay, Lord. But between now and then, he has given us some instruction. And what we're considering here today is he said, if there's division, then it's not, it's not the supper. And so I'm going to challenge you as we go into this last song here, as the ushers come and release you by row, that as always, if you've not surrendered your life to Christ, this is not for you to partake. But rather than withholding you from it, I plead with you today to just say, I surrender. I give myself my life to you, Lord. I repent of my sins and I believe on you for the forgiveness of them. But for each of you as believers to be willing to say, you know what, I've got an issue that needs to be addressed. Let's pray. Father, we want to do this right, Lord. We want to be obedient. And Lord, in that, and yes, it may sound selfish, but that's just how amazing you are and how gracious you are that, Lord, in that, we want to experience more of what you have for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd so move in our midst here, no doubt as you already have been, Lord, to ready our hearts for partaking of communion. Lord, I'd ask for your blessing upon the, the elements here, Lord. And, and yes, Lord, I... To us, they seem as symbols, Lord, but we know that you move supernaturally to do a work within us as we partake. And we don't want to diminish that, Lord. We recognize this time as sacred. And we recognize, Lord, how you call us to unity as we partake. And so, Lord, do that work here now in a way that only you can. Ready our hearts and move in our midst, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.